You might even try just saying, let me tell you a story. And then putting people into storytelling mode and listening to stories, like we're wired culturally for many millennia to hear yep. and pass on stories. That is much more compelling because then you're going to tell a cohesive end-to-end -end story. You're not just going to give, let me teach you feature one. Let me teach you feature two. You're going to say, here's the benefit you're going to get from our product. And here's why this other benefit now naturally flows from that benefit. And it's, it's the storytelling mode. I think that's really powerful. I also think that lowering friction is important, you know, for people to see in a demo that, oh, this is something I could do versus, oh my gosh, I have to go ask a developer to get, you know, like it. So, so I've just, for whatever reason, been, I've been, been sort of pulled toward products that are self-serve and very easy, lightweight, take things that were before friction and process heavy and sort of turning it into something, you know, I would I describe it more as more, more pirates, the Navy. Uh, those are the kinds of products I like to demo. And that, and that would, you know, when people see those demos, it gives them the sense of enablement. Wow, I can do something I didn't think I could do before. You know, optimizing early on, it was, you know, somebody at Starbucks whose job was to optimize Starbucks.com. Welcome back to the Stretch Four Podcast. This is episode 20. Today's guest is Dan Sharoker, who's the CEO and founder of Rewind AI. Previously, Dan started Optimizely and sold it to a private equity firm. He currently lives in Denver with his four children. Uh, Dan is a guy who spent a lot of time involved in the tech ecosystem. He started out helping build out the analytics team for Barack Obama's 20, 2008 campaign. So he's been uh, involved alone a long time in kind of analytics and marketing. And now he is head first in AI with Optimizely exiting, now back at it with his second run with Rewind.ai. Dan is, this interview goes through why he wears a black v-neck t-shirt in every interview, uh, his journey and exit in Optimizely, where he started in San Francisco, why he relocated to Denver. Also talk to him about his personal journey with building out Rewind AI as one of the uh, fastest growing AI companies. Also, Really, really most important part of this interview is discussing Dan's approach to demonstrations and how he demos his products and the tactics he's utilized. He ran a campaign earlier this year for a Series A where he was able to generate over $300 million in inbound venture capital interest for his round. He ended up closing that round with NEA as the lead investor. So he gives great tips there. We also talked about press, sales and marketing, and his health and wellness journey as a founder. So we got a lot of stuff in this show, so check it out. I hope you enjoy it. A few other notes. This actual episode is brought to you by Modern Tax. Tax information and business information on both entities and individuals here in the U.S. The tools help internal underwriting, risk, fraud, and data teams expand their coverage, fight fraud, and better understand the businesses that they're currently working with, as well as the businesses that they're prospectively working with. So check out moderntax.io. And if you would like to request sample individual or business tax records on your customers, please notate that in your interest form completed on the website. Uh, so again, Modern Tax is bringing this episode for the next few episodes. Uh, check out Modern Tax. Uh, I'm obviously the CEO of Modern Tax. So if you have any direct questions about what we do, how our data is useful for various business use cases, uh, I'm the person to talk to. But in the simple terms, Modern Tax is a library that contains large data sets around private businesses here in the U.S. as well as individuals. And tax data is our main format of data that we have. So check us out. Hope you enjoy this episode. 
with Dan Scherberger, founder and CEO of Rewind AI. Great. Welcome back to the Stretch 4 Podcast, Episode 20. I am here with Dan Soroker. Dan Soroker is currently the CEO and founder of Rewind.ai. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt, for having me. So, Dan, a lot to unpack today on this show. You've been making a lot of noise this year as it relates to AI, as it relates to all the top-level things that we talk about here in the Stretch 4 Podcast. So, I want to talk a bit about your beginning because I think it's very interesting in how you became, you know, who you are today. So from my understanding, you started off at Google and at some point you became the director of analytics for Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. Talk a bit about that because I do see a correlation. A lot of there's a lot of people that go from politics into tech and back and forth. Tell me about what's going on there and, and what particularly was interesting about joining a political campaign and then. How did that kind of spark plug you into becoming a founder and starting your own technology company? It was a bit serendipitous because I was working at Google as a product manager and I heard about a candidate for president coming to give a talk. At the time he was third in the polls behind Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. I thought he was a little bit of no-name senator from Illinois. I had followed him from almost the beginning of his launch. And uh, I went to go see him speak and the line was enormous. There's a huge line to go see him speak. I was like, oh, maybe people are onto this guy. Uh, so I actually snuck in in the back. I actually had to lie to a Secret Service agent to get in to see. I told the Secret Service agent that I had a meeting in a conference room way past the the part he was protecting. So I snuck in to Charlie's Cafe, the main auditorium, and I saw a speech that he gave, uh, which you can find on YouTube, which is all about how he wanted to take what we're doing at Google with evidence and science and feedback and data and bring that to the government. And the last thing he said when he came to Google was, I want you to be involved. Uh, which is a, a euphemism usually for getting Google employees to give you donations. But I took him literally. And two weeks later, I flew to Chicago where his headquarters uh, campaign was headquartered in the dead of winter and started off as a volunteer, eventually turned into a job as the director of analytics, where my job was to figure out how to use data to help make the campaign make better decisions. And that then ultimately inspired me to start my first successful company, which is Optimizely, which is really just trying to build a product I wish we had in the campaign to make it easy for anybody to do A-B testing. I saw firsthand the pain of wanting to do website A-B testing, but just needing a developer and part of the process. And a lot of that was the heavy lifting I was doing. So I thought, let's build a product so that anyone in the world can do A-B testing. And that's what it turned into. That's an awesome story. Fascinating story. I only have one connection to the Obama presidency. A guy from my hometown, I consider a friend, Reggie Love, was someone I got to meet through post he had, you know, he was basically Obama called him the I Reggie and he was kind of like his assistant, but he's went on to do great things. Now he's, he's working in the uh, private equity space with Apollo, but it's fascinating. It's almost like you're a part of the, the Barack Obama, like tech mafia or investment mafia. Cause you read about all these people who some way kind of contributed to Obama's campaign, which I would say was definitely like a viral campaign. I remember he spoke at my, my university back in like 2008 and it was, we packed the gym out and he was just such an electric person. So you were handling the analytics of that campaign. That's pretty, pretty fascinating. So, and I'm assuming you, so optimizely another direct correlation, one of my friends, Richie Cerner runs Phoenix, which is now in the Optimizely, what used to be the Optimizely office here in San Francisco, uh, which is another very classic office that I always remember when I first moved out here. And so you transitioned from Barack Obama's campaign. Obviously, he won the election. He was successful. 
how what was the timestamp from moving on to launch Optimizely and take what you learned from that experience and build a real company around it? Well, well given your your audience, a lot of them are founders, I'll give you the, the, the honest answer, which was I, after the campaign, wanted to never do anything analytics related again. I had gained 50 pounds on the campaign. I was working like 7 a.m. to 2 a.m. every day of the week, seven days a week. I barely got outside, let alone like did anything other than work. And so I was so burnt out on anything related to what we ended up doing. And so the path I took was, you know, I, I did the campaign. I was part of what this weird uh, entity called the presidential transition team that sort of emerges between the campaign. You know, he wins in November and then come January 20th, you have the, uh, the inauguration. So between that, you have to figure out like what we're going to do. So I did that and very quickly realized in that, that I do not want to be in government. I turned down a job in the White House to really just get back to the things I love, which is building things. And the campaign was very much like a startup. The government was very much not. The governance is very different than trying to win elections. So I came back to the Bay Area. I teamed up with Pete Kuman, another associate product manager at Google. And we started off saying like, let's start a company together. You know, this is like the worst way to start a company is like, we should do a company and let's go to a whiteboard and figure out like, what should the company do? It's the reason it's the worst way to start a company is like, it, it sort of doesn't start with a problem. It doesn't start with a problem you're trying to solve. And so in brief, we started with a company called Carrot Sticks. It was an online math game for kids. It failed and it failed because, uh, or at least we should say we gave up on it because we weren't any of the core constituents for whom we we're building. We weren't parents, teachers, or kids. So we had no idea what to do. Like we were having all these endless, endless debates on, should it be more pedagogical or more fun? And we yeah. ended up really spinning in mud. And what we realized was like our biggest challenge was distribution, which when you come from Google, you don't even know what that word means. You don't need to know, learn about it. You just build a product and ship it and put the word Google in front of it. If it's any good, hundreds of thousands of people will use it, go to millions. And so we learned the hard way that distribution was challenging. So our first or I guess our second company then, or second idea was called Spreadly, which was incentivized cost marketing. Is how do you take a product that you built and get the users of the product to tell other people about it? We did. Uh, we applied to Y Combinator with that and got in and very quickly realized that wouldn't work either. And what we realized was like the, the social cost of spamming your friends, you know, it would never be less than the, the incentive we could give you. You know, you're never going to give you a discount big enough to get you to do that. So, but we learned a very valuable lesson. This is a lesson in part to your listeners is that, the magic of building for yourself. So with Spreadly, we were building the product we wish we had on Carrot Six to get distribution. That was so much more powerful and so much more impactful than Carrot Six, where we were building for parents, teachers, and kids. We weren't any of those people. And so mm -hmm. that's when I thought to myself, ah, what is a product that I, Dan Soroker, wish existed in the world that doesn't? And that's when I connected the idea to the campaign, which was like, ah, I wish I had A-B testing that anyone could use. And you know, one of the weekends I hacked together a demo, showed it to Paul Graham on one of the Tuesday dinners and immediately said, forget that other idea, do this. This is A-B testing for marketers. And I remember thinking at the time, what does he mean by marketers? I don't think I've ever met one of these people, but uh, we ended up doing uh, that. And we took his advice and uh, very quickly it took off from there. And so you were, uh, what, which, which, um, which batch was this for YC that you were part of? It was probably one of the Win early batches. Yeah, actually. winter 2010. Okay, so winter 2010. Wow, that's fascinating. So what were, what, what do you think that program has, you know, that, I feel like that program of get customers, build, ship, all the tropes of YC, how was it very, how was it impactful for you in building that initial product? Was it, and and how would you assess it to founders that are obviously there is a lot of founders that listen that may be a part of YC, but some that are not. What are those kind of key things that you learned during that experience that has, you know, things that you still use today and in, 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 as you produce a new company? The, the first and most meaningful is the mantra of build something people want. 
It sounds so obvious. Uh, in fact, when we sold Optimizely, one of the most amazing gifts and treasures I've ever received was Y Combinator sends a shirt to all the founders who sell or go public. They send them a shirt that says, I built something people want. And I think I'm thinking of it framed and put it behind me because it's like so like just their whole mantra is build something people want. And it seems so simple, but it's also so obviously the thing that people forget because you know, you, for example, like carrot sticks, we didn't know what people wanted. That was the first part. We didn't know parents, teachers, or kids. We didn't know. So like we were building for something we didn't know. And even with optimizing so many times you would fall in love with an idea that at the end of the day was like some cool technological edifice, but didn't ultimately solve a problem a user wants. Mm -hmm. So I think that mantra is super important. In particular, the best way to do that is to get out of the building. You know, Steve yep. Blank and the four steps of the epiphany talked about this idea, get out of the building and like talk to users listen to them, empathize with them, and start with the problem first, not with the cool technology. That's, I think, a very common mistake. Now, and today, every day, I, as I, I work on my team, I, and uh, engineers, I, I really push them to empathize with the customer and the problem. You spend 80% of your time on understanding the problem, and then the 20% of your time focused on the solution is, is so much well worth it. I think there's this old saying that uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln or these other, I think it was a president said like, you know, uh, if you had to chop down a tree, what would you, how'd you, how'd you do it? He said, well, I'll spend 80% 80 of my time sharpening the, the, the ax. You, you, you know, it's very easy as a founder to get full in love with this, like that feeling of effort and impact, but, yo, I'm just wanting to emails. I'm going to networking events. And like at the end of the day, it all comes down to build something people want. Yeah, I definitely think that, that that's pretty fascinating. And so you exited Optimizely, maybe talk a bit about that exit. I mean, end to end, like how much time were we talking about? I mean, you always had that office. I just remember seeing that and moved here in 2017. I would always see that that office. What was that process like for you as as a founder? Uh, you know, exiting that company. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard. You know, we we did sell the company, and it was. I'm proud of the outcome. I'm proud of the company. But like, we weren't. You know, you know we, our potential, what we could have been, was so much greater than we ended up selling for. We sold to private equity. We did the traditional. We hired Goldman Sachs. We went through and talked to a lot of folks. And, you know, it was also the, the timing was tough, you know, it was like, you know, 2020 was not a, not an easy year to sell a company. And ultimately, you know, we, we were able to get a deal done, but I look back at sort of my part of that, my journey. And I actually think if I look back even years before that, you know, the, the writing or, or the, the moment we, we didn't, where the arc changed on our trajectory really started with the moment I kind of fell out of love with the business. Uh, it was around 2013 where like, we had done what I set out to do. You know, we built a product that makes it easy for anybody to do A-B testing. That was my mission. That was why I started the company. And then I kind of fell out of love with the business. I started to get resentful. I felt trapped. Not only that, but I had this grass is greener feeling around what I'm working on today. You know, the early ideas for what I'm working on today started as early as, as you know, 2013. And so the moment I fell out of love with the business was the moment I had, a, you know, I wasn't as able to attract the best talent, retain the best talent. And, um, you know, it, it was a great, you know, grew to a company to $120 million in annual recurring revenue, which is certainly not easy to do and 450 people. But I think it could have been much bigger, much better had I found a way to stay in love with the business. And, and just a, a moment on that, where, where do you see founders in trip up in that regard where you obviously continue to run the company, you all still had an exit. What's the trade-off? You know, I see, especially now, we see companies that are coming out of raising 2021 at those valuations, large amounts of capital. It's 2023. It's not easy to raise that amount of money just in general, uh, you know, unless you are in AI, which we'll maybe get into later. But there's a lot of, I guess, founder, uh, it could be a lot of founder exhaustion 
or burnout around their current ideas? And do these ideas even make sense? How are you able to kind of push through to get an exit, essentially land the plane, uh, return some capital to your investors, and then obviously keep the energy to now transition into starting a new company? Because I think that's a very, very, that's not a, 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 a typical topic founders talk about. You don't see you know, founders talking about maybe falling out of love with their idea publicly. So maybe, maybe expound a bit on that. Yeah. I, I, I've thought so much about it because it is like in my mind, the core reason we didn't reach our full potential. You know, I, I think it starts with recognizing that it is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, I started optimizing, frankly, just trying to build something that would work. You know, I, I had worked on carrot sticks that failed and Spreadly that was failing. And, and I just had this desperation in the short term, just make something that works. I didn't think six months out, a year out, five years out, 10 years out, you know, it was 12 years. You know, we started in 2010, we you know, sold, you know, 10 years later, like those things you don't think about upfront, but as soon as you have any semblance of product market fit or any semblance of progress, you should ask yourself, like, what's it going to take for you to want to be at this company in five or 10 years and, and protect that. You know, I made the mistake early on at Optimizely thinking that my job as the CEO was to hire people better than me, set them up for success and then get out of the way. Not, not, you know, do the things that I love necessarily. Like I was really good at product engineering and design. And so I hired great leaders in that area and then they let them off. And then I ended up, you know, by, by just because I'm not as good at marketing and sales and customer success, I ended up spending a lot more time there because the, the leaders I'd hire there wouldn't be as good. And I wouldn't really. And, and so my day became a lot of things I didn't get energy from. And, and, you know, obviously as a founder, you do a lot of stuff you don't want to do, but if every day back to back is a bunch of stuff that just drains your bucket and, and drains your battery, you know, that's not going to lead to a company that you want to be at in five or 10 years. And so my, my philosophy and thinking is it's changed on this dramatically, not just for myself, but for my team. You know, I just had a conversation with my head of engineering who's the team is growing and scaling. He loves coding. He loves building things, but he starts to think, does my job now as a manager to like let other people do? I was like, no, like you need to, if you get energy, if you build, you know, if your, if your bucket gets filled by building things, don't feel like it's selfish to spend your time to do that. Like you will be a better engineer. You'll be a better manager. You know, up until the very end of Optimize, I was still coding. I was trying to win sort of our hack weeks, but I, I definitely underinvested in myself. And that's ultimately what led to the burnout, you know, and I think, and I think that resentment comes from this feeling of being trapped. And, and I should have taken more ownership of that, like feeling trapped by, you know, by myself, really. It's like, you know, I created it. I felt like I couldn't leave uh, because, you know, I, I, I didn't think we would make it. And, but I should have found a way to fall back in love and, and don't feel like you're selfish. That's the biggest advice I'd give is like the most selfless thing you can do for your company is to love it and to always love it. The moment you fall out of love is the moment the, the writing's on the wall on the outcome. Wow, that's, that's very impactful. Definitely, I snipped that up for a lot of founders that may be in those positions. So, I got to ask a question around just the black V-neck tee. Every every <laughs> video I see you in, no matter where it is, you have this black V-neck tee. Maybe is it is it the Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg wear the same thing every day, or is it just something? You, you enjoy black V-neck tees and what type of brand and style of black V-neck tee? Yeah, yeah. I Thank you for asking. It's the first time, uh, you know, I've been doing a couple podcasts. First time somebody's really gotten to the core, the hard questions. So uh, yeah, at some point, probably 10 years ago, I realized that my life is much easier if I just minimize the number of decisions I need to make. By the end of the day, you make so many decisions that you have decision fatigue. And so I thought, you know, and that and I, I'm not a big believer in like, vanity and ego and dress, you know, like I'm never going to get Botox. Like I just don't care about that kind of stuff. So I, I view yeah. clothes purely in the utilitarian sense of them. And so I wanted to find clothing that I could consistently get replace, repeat. I don't wear just the same shirt. I have like 50 of these. I just, oh. you know, that's just the same thing. And uh, so, yeah, it's about minimizing decision fatigue. This particular brand is good. Uh, I actually, we have 
I can find the exact name of the, the brand, but we have a, an employee swag store that okay. I, folk, I, I chose for our company, our like swag store, because they have this brand that I really like that, that for a bigger guy like me, the nice thing is a key, it's a nice, uh, uh, on my, on my arms, I don't look like I'm wearing a muumu. Uh, yep. It is a CVC. That's the name of the brand CVC next level CVC V neck. Um, okay. Nice. Well, yeah, I see, it. I see it consistently. So I had to ask the question yeah. Yeah. and, you know, as we get ready to transition to kind of a bit about what you're building now, you started Optimizely here in Silicon Valley, ground zero for technology and, and everything, just the heart of it. Now you're in Denver. What led to that transition and, and kind of how long have you been, you know, in the Denver metropolitan area and what are the differences in, in living there versus living here in Silicon Valley? Yeah, I've been here three years. I like to think I moved before it was cool to leave the Bay Area. You know, there's a period of time where it's like everyone's leaving. Uh, I think people are coming back now, actually. But the, the decision to leave was is the primarily for my family. You know, I have now have three young kids, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. Uh, and I wanted them to grow up with their cousins. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law live uh, here in Denver. They have five kids. So that was the dream. And we always wanted to do that. When I was running Optimizely, I really couldn't. You know, I had to be there in person. But as soon as you sold the company, you know, it made sense to, to finally fulfill that dream. And so, and, and it coincided nicely, actually, with, with Remote First as a kind of a, as a, as a meme that started to end. Uh, so we've embraced that full, you know, wholeheartedly. We are Remote First. Uh, we're all distributed. You know, we're not all here in Denver. Um, and that's given us amazing access to talent. Like some of the folks on our team are like, incredible, incredible yeah. people that would never move to the Bay Area, uh, yeah. but happen to be incredible. So like we have just amazing access to talent and people on our team. Because mm -hmm. of that, it, it's been harder because we have to start off with, you know, really clear clarity of communication. Yeah. You know, my tone in Slack isn't as good as my tone in person. So sometimes I have to be, be really careful on how I communicate, how do I give feedback, how am I candid with people in yeah. Slack and I'm not, you know, where I don't just affect them uh, negatively. But, but overall, it's been great. You know, I think I, I don't, I, we also get together once a quarter in person, which is also really important as a team. We're 20 people now. And, you know, when you get together once in person in quarter, we go someplace nice, get together, like you build these reservoirs of trust that then you can build it, you know, it can tap into over the months or that go between these retreats. And um, yeah. that's important as well. So I would say general, like if you, if you want to do a startup on easy mode, it's a little bit easier in the Bay Area. I'm not going to lie. Like if you wanted to, like, if you don't have a family, you don't have kids, you want to yeah. just sort of pick up and move and you have that flexibility, you know, you're surrounded by more than anything, you're surrounded by other like-minded, crazy people who think they can, you know, use technology to change the world and, and, and to have your, that from a purely from a minimizing burnout perspective, being a part of your tribe, I think that's uh, valuable, but I also, at my at life stage, I don't need that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I feel like I'm at a stage where you know, I could be anywhere and still be successful in terms of my role. So yeah. I'm willing to do a little bit harder mode uh, and have access to amazing talent uh, by being remote first. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and as we transition a bit into rewind, uh, one of the things I think the room of reasons I reached out to you, obviously you had the uh, memo that went out for investors and kind of how you raised your most recent round of fundraising, which we'll talk about. But one thing I was obviously really impressed with was how your demo, right? The demo of rewind. So tactically, I think for a lot of founders, you know, particularly founders, if you don't go through YC, I'm assuming YC is very, uh, it's so ironic that so many so much has now been written and startups have become kind of mainstream, but the actual product demo is still kind of a lost art in a way. So maybe just what's your approach to preparing a demonstration and, and maybe give us any kind of specific strategies that you think from like maybe the first day you're building a product, getting to mention with Optimizer, you were able to kind of build an MVP in like a weekend. 
how are you tactically approaching a presentation of the product and how important is it to you? Because I think you did a very good job with your, your recent one, but like how much do you value that to be able to communicate uh, what you're building? It's a fantastic question. I am a big believer in communicating through code. A demo is communicating and it's communicating a very special thing, which is what is possible that you thought might not be possible before. And so all of my best demos all start with this seed of, wow, I didn't think this was possible, but through technology, I can prove to you otherwise. Uh, My very first, the thing that wowed Paul Graham back in that Tuesday in 2010 was that I showed him with just very simple JavaScript and a web interface that you could literally touch any part of a website with a mouse Click it and change what's values now WYSIWYG, but you know, the idea that you could make it change your website without needing a developer and to do that quickly and to do that all client side in JavaScript at that time was like very novel. Like JavaScript had just gotten good enough and browsers had just gotten fast enough that you could do that. You know, and so, you know, that, you know, and this is now dating me, but like, you know, jQuery became generic. Like there's a lot of reasons why technology had made it possible to do that. So it all starts with that seed. What is that thing that you're trying to communicate through your code that otherwise would seem impossible? And you don't have to do that, but if you do it that way, that's what wows people. It's like, whoa, I didn't know that you could do that. Now you're showing me that in the demo. So I work with that as the fundamental seed. I recognize that people are very impatient. Uh, they're going to quickly drop off. Like, so you got to sort of wow them early on and really focus on the problem they're trying to solve. I think too many people, fo- like if you look at demos on product, hunt, like a lot of it is like them touting how sophisticated their technology is, not touting how amazing the problem is that they're solving. And so remembering that your goal is to solve a problem. Your goal isn't to just show sophistication in your technology and how smart you are. Uh, you know, take your ego out of it. It's not about that. It's about, you know, showing how you can solve a problem for somebody. And then I think the last thing I'll say, you know, the, the demo I think that resonated in the investor pitch and even our iPhone demo is, 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 is sort of recognizing that people are busy. The problems you're trying to solve are important. And if you're able to tell a story that shows that you're able to sort of empathize with them, if people feel like they have empathy, that that somebody's empathizing with them, a good example is the very first version of our product for Mac, we exclude incognito windows. Any browser that you're browsing that's in private mode, we don't capture that in our product. Like that's one small example of something that shows you have empathy and and sort of it builds the brand. And then really the demo's job is to get them excited to try the product, to move on to the next. So it's like really, it's about a conversion optimization problem. How do you get them to actually download, try it? Um, But those are just some thoughts. Well, yeah, that's that's pretty fascinating. And that that kind of connects it, uh, you know, trying to show how self software and technology can solve these problems. And and again, you, you see that as your core thesis around showing how it solves a problem. Uh, what tips do you give from those founders? Like if I was a YC founder right now getting ready to go through demo day here in a couple of weeks or any of the other accelerators, what prior, how would you prioritize it in the case that it's maybe just you and your co-founder? You don't have the, you know, kind of like bandwidth to make a cool product demo. What what would you do to kind of like what tips would you give them to to improve their process to to do something that kind of sticks with their their customer base and connects? Um, I mean, there's a couple tactics you try. I mean, the core of it is you want to tell a story. So imagine your demo begins with a sentence. Let me tell you a story. You might even try just saying, let me tell you a story. And then putting people into storytelling mode and listening to stories, like we're wired culturally for many millennia to hear yeah. and pass on stories. That is much more compelling because then you're going to tell a cohesive end-to-end story. You're not just going to give, let me teach you feature one. Let me teach you feature two. You're going to say, here's the benefit you're going to get from our product. And here's why this other benefit now naturally flows from that benefit. And it's, it's the storytelling mode. I think that's really powerful. I also think that lowering friction is important, you know, for people to see in a demo that, oh, this is something I could do versus, oh my gosh, I have to go ask 
a developer to get, you know, like it's so, so I've just, for whatever reason, been, I've been, been sort of pulled toward products that are self-serve and very easy, lightweight, take things that were before friction and process heavy and sort of turning it into something, you know, I would I'd describe it more as more, more pirates, the Navy. Uh, those are the kinds of products I like to demo. And that, and that would, you know, when people see those demos, it gives them the sense of enablement. Wow. I can do something I didn't think I could do before, you know, optimize it early on. It was, you know, somebody at Starbucks whose job was to optimize starbucks.com feeling just beaten down because no engineers wants to help them and sees our demo and says, oh, now I can finally have all these ideas I want and bring it. And like they did that. Like we, for $79 a month, they, they bought our software, put our snippet on starbucks.com and started using our product. So, and maybe the better way to describe that is if your demo can turn your users into heroes, then you have something magical. If you can tell them a story, it's sort of the, the standard like hero's journey. Like you, you're coming here, giving them this magical gift that will turn them into a hero, make them look amazing in front of their friends and colleagues and get them promoted and you know, a better spouse and a bigger house and more you know, kids are gonna say, I love you, daddy. Like those are the things that I think uh, turn demos uh, into magic. Wow, that's awesome advice. And uh, thank you for that, Dan. I think a lot of founders can find value in this kind of demo season, fundraising, demo days, all that's kind of really really about to kick off here in the uh, fall. Next line item, obviously, now that we've got the demo down, you've got your product. I think you've also been very compelling in obviously storytelling, but also how you build relationships for your press. And I would love to know like how you've approached it. Because obviously with Rewind, you took a very you know non-consensus way to raise money and market your company. Uh, which worked out well for you. I mean, we'll talk a bit about that. But, you know, what unique playbooks have you used to kind of demonstrate and push mar push out marketing around product releases, around fundraising announcements and new new features? How how have you done that? Do you do a lot of that, you know, journalists that you build relationships with over time? And, and what does that look like for you uh, over the over the course of your your journey? I would say this is one of the things I'm actually the worst at. <laughs> like I, I always wait till the end to reach out to journalists. My work, my interactions with them are too transactional. Like I always tell myself, I should build a relationship with two or three journalists and become friends and like show them I'm not just trying to get them to write about the thing and regurgitate my, you know, my, my, my press. So I'm actually, I don't think that great at it. You know, I, every time I have this, we go through this process, we're working super hard on a product. We're thinking about the marketing plan for, for rewind when we launch, I reach out to like, Maybe I even set up like a you know email automation drip campaign. I reached out to like a hundred journalists or something. Nobody wrote about it uh, until I mean they all, I all tried to pre-brief pre them. I mean the standard idea is that you have a demo, you pre-brief them, you give them some early access. They agreed to some embargoed deadline like seven a.m. on the day you're going to launch. But I actually completely failed at that. Like instead, they did end up writing about it, but long after we had demoed it, not, it wasn't this sort of like relationship. It was it was more because oh, it looks like other people are going to write about it, so I should too. So yeah. I don't think I'm particularly good at that. I actually think. Maybe another way I think about it is and no knock on the press. If you're a journalist listening to this, I'm sure your job will exist in the future. Don't worry. But I do think the future of, of engagement, word of mouth is things like Twitter and, and getting people to actually find value in what you do. The actual users sharing and magnifying it is so much like, a, you know, a quote tweet we got from Patrick Carlson, the co-founder or CEO of 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 Stripe when we launched, when he said, looks super cool, three words were way more, he tweeted what we had launched. That was way more powerful than a, you know, a Wired article or a Verge article. And, you know, and so did, I think- Did you pass that along to him, obviously being in the YC, did you pass it along to him? No, or he just, no, he just saw it. He just saw it on Twitter. I think, honestly, had I passed it on to him and asked him, that yeah. would have felt 
to him more commercial, more transactional, more relate. You know, it's like uh, you know, like he's doing me a favor. I think he would have shared it much more likely. It was organically good. So maybe it comes down to if you want something that people are going to talk about it in press and on Twitter, make something that's an amazing organically good demo. Like going back to your earlier question, that is spend ninety nine percent of your time on your demo. If you want one percent of your time, email a bunch of reporters. But like. I don't think there's, I have not cracked the code on like how you build a relationship with reporters so they write about you at a time. Wow, that, that's pretty fascinating. Just just that you're spending so much time on the demo and that story, it creates that viral because I'm assuming the signups from a Patrick Collison retweeting your demo is, it's like, yeah, it's it, you couldn't quantify it compared against an article that you got on BuzzFeed or Wired or whatever tech uh, news um, option. And then once you do go viral and you see he's retweeting it, that's when all those, you know, additional press and journalists want to write about you. Exactly. Uh, exactly. As it, as it pertains to now you're, you're building a B2B product with Optimizely. So it's a bit more straightforward with building a sales function. Rewind seems to be much more self-serve bottoms up consumer consumerized software. Maybe talk a bit about your sales approach in, in both strands. Like, you know, what was it like going from getting Starbucks to pay $79 to use Optimizely to taking it to 100 million AR and maybe start there? And then we could talk a bit about what the sales process looks like now with, with, with Rewind. Yeah. You know, I think I've learned a lot on this and mostly through making mistakes. You know, early on, Optimizely, my co founder and I weren't particularly good at sales. So the only way we would succeed was we put a demo out there, a product out there that self serve people would use. You know, I didn't even know this person at Starbucks was using our product until many, many weeks after they put it on their website. I'm like, this can't be true. Like they wouldn't, Fortune 100 or 500 company wouldn't just put a JavaScript from some small startup on the website without some security review or IT review or sales call or a demo. And yeah. I think I learned in that actually that there are these people trapped in companies that the bureaucracy of the company, the IT teams of those companies, limit like if you're able to sort of grow bottoms up at least that's the only way i really know how to do it you're able to get to certain people that otherwise would be impossible to do it through traditional sales our first you know few years of sales at, at optimizer were really and, and no offense to the people on my team were doing that they're really just order takers they would just somebody would sign up they'd see our website uh you know with this amazing experience where you come to optimize.com you could enter any url it doesn't have to be something running optimize and we would show you the WYSIWYG editor right away so people mm -hmm. very quickly saw the power of our product and so most of what sales was trying to do was just like 30 minute demo. Okay. How much this cost? Well, you know, it's all just like taking orders. It wasn't true traditional enterprise selling. As we got bigger and started to have customers who were using us at massive scale, you know, we were talking about million dollar, multi-million dollar contracts a year. That's when I really started to learn the true art and magic of enterprise sales, which is it maybe has a bad rap because it's thought of sort of like, you know, you know stereotypically as you're taking the client out to a steak and dinner and like you're doing all these things that aren't pure they're not like the actual product but what i learned is the great enterprise sales people sales humans they find how their product that they're trying to sell really solves a problem for the customer they're selling to and it's like a deep organizational product it's how do you align the product with the company that you're selling to's priorities and that is actually a very strong and powerful art very difficult to do uh, very non-deterministic you know i like coding because like it's deterministic. You write the code, either works, it doesn't. If it doesn't, if there's a bug, it's you. It's not the computer. It's not like the compiler did it wrong. You know, sales is very non-deterministic. You have, you know, you might do everything right in a sales process, you still lose the deal, or vice versa. You do everything wrong, you might win the deal. So, you know, that's something I've definitely learned over time. I'll tell you candidly, 
after having seen that journey with Optimizely, I was very excited to build a company with no sales, product that is bought, not sold. That's what we've done with Rewind. We don't have a single salesperson at our team and our company. I don't think we ever will. Maybe we will down the line. But for now, like we're growing, you know, we, we've got a, a business that people want to use, a product that people want to use without, you know, that, that stands on its own. The website stands on its own, the product stands on its own. We don't need a human to bridge the gap, but you know, maybe we will. I'm probably we will, but I yeah. like the mode that we're in right now. No, that's awesome. Yeah, going bottoms up is 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 definitely the way to go early. And you guys have put up some some pretty good numbers that you've publicly shared so far. So it's working. How how do you think about growth right now? Like, obviously with 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 the YC ethos, you know, just keep growing five ten percent a week. Is that how how do, how do those metrics kind of like? How do you stay tuned in on that? I mean, you're obviously an engineer. You're very uh, data numbers driven guy. How does that how does that work practically in an organization like Rewind and how you're trying to get incremental growth on a week over week basis? How, how, how have you been able to track that and and map to the numbers that you you you've publicly shared and where you want to go? Yeah, you know, I, I'll start off by saying we haven't figured it all out. I mean, we still are in the stage. I think we figured out a lot when it comes to the product. You know, but distribution is just as hard as the product. And I think we still have a lot more we can learn there and a lot more we can get better at. You know, we are right now in the process of really focusing on building and optimizing a growth engine. There's a, a famous uh, framework called the race car growth framework. Lenny's newsletter has this, it talks about like the ways to grow. And there's, you know, there are growth engines, there are turbo boosts, there's lubricants, there's fuel, mid-stage accelerants, it kickstarts. There's all these different kinds of ways to grow, but yeah. really only four fundamental growth engines, SEO, paid ads, sales, and virality. And mm -hmm. so part of the job of a business is to actually have self-sustaining growth. A lot of our growth to date has been turbo boosts. It's like, you know, my investor, you know, when I put out my pitch publicly for the series A and had 2 million people on Twitter watch it, like that grew, that helped us grow tremendously, but you can only do that once. You can't, you know, yeah. you only have a series A pitch once. So it's not a sustainable, self-sustainable growth engine. So that's something we're still optimizing and learning. You know, it's the goal of a self-sustaining engine is that it drives nearly all of the growth long-term and it, it does it in a way where, you know, the one component is self-sustaining, you know, for example, you, you create an output revenue and that can be reinvested into more growth. For example, ads, that's, that's the, that's the way I think about growth and distribution more broadly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so Dan, as we transition into this episode, obviously we talked about sales, we talked about PR demos. One of the other things, obviously mental health, Maybe that's the word, but really just taking care of yourself as a founder to do this and endure. Now you're in your second company, 10 years on a, on one company. The amount of stress, the amount of frustrations is really undocumented, I think, in, in the in ethos of Silicon Valley. Uh, I think now people are starting to become more aware of it. How have you taken an approach to that? I mean, I'm a father, parent myself. You obviously have three young children, uh, which, you know, is, is challenging in itself when you compare it to starting a company, you know, it's like the same thing. It's like, you got it. You got kids that are growing up. They need you. They're unpredictable. Startups are somewhat unpredictable. How do you manage it all? Uh, and how do you, I guess you really can't keep a balance. I feel like as a startup founder, like there's, that's kind of like a pie in the sky dream, right? There's always going to be these imbalances, but how do you, how do you take care of yourself in, in that regard? And, and what does that look like? to to you like what's your practical steps of, of 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 making sure you're right to be able to run your company and then do all the things you need to do at home well i, I could talk on this topic for hours but i'll i'll try to keep it short so first i recognize the experience i had in my first company 
as the moment our company's success or failure, or I guess outcome was written on the wall was the moment I fell out of love with the company. And so that recognition, like the most important thing for the outcome, if I looked at the expected value of that, I mean, it was great. I mean, we still sold it for a lot. It was, you know, I'm not trying to diminish it, but it was the, it was just a pinnacle or a small drop of what it could have been because of my mental health, because of my commitment, my love, my energy. And so I very much taken to heart the idea that the, the company that I'm doing today, the most important thing is that I want to be here in 10 years, at least the most important thing to me. Uh, and I want to be here in 20 years, I'm going to be here in 30 years. And so I very much view that as an important part. So it's number one, it's like recognizing the importance of your mental health, the importance of your commitment, of your health. And in particular, recognizing that it's not, you should not accept at face value that you will be miserable. I, I've seen so many founders who just think you got to do the grind. You got to do the grind. You got to hustle. Like, no, you don't. You can live your own life. You can, there are many paths to success, but optimizely, I made up for my lack of prioritization by just sheer effort. I worked a lot of hours. Like that was just my approach then. Today, I don't have that luxury. I cannot make up in sheer hours what I would otherwise have done before because I have three kids. I'm at home with dinner with them every night at five o'clock. I put them down. Like I'm not, I, I'm a very present father and that is more important to me than anything else. So that is a constraint. I'm not, that's immovable. So the only way to succeed is to just get much better at how I choose to spend my time when I'm working. So I'm ruthless with my prioritization. Like that would be one way to, to think about how to build mental health is just, I always tell myself over and over again, my mantra, the company's mantra is, the main thing is that the main thing should stay the main thing. So gotcha. whatever the main thing is, like I look back at optimizing, all of these things I was spending my time and energy on ended up not mattering. You don't know in the moment. In hindsight, you can look back and say, oh, that stuff was wasted energy. You know, yeah. But your job is to constantly be not only doing the job, but thinking about, am I working on the right thing? What is the main thing for the company right now? And mm -hmm. if you spend any time and or energy on something that's not the main thing, that's wasted. In hindsight, you'll look at it and say, like, why did I do all that? So mm -hmm. it, it comes down to that. It's ruthless prioritization of your time, focusing on what is the main thing for you and the company at any given time. Um, so that's the second thing. I mean, first, admitting that it is going to be important to the success of the company. Don't be selfless by burning yourself out and being miserable. Like I think that is a very common trope that engineer or you know entrepreneurs think that it should be miserable. It's going to be hard. And one day when you go public, it'll all be worth it. No, your job gets harder every year. Like, as a, yeah. do you know how hard it is to be a public company CEO? Like, there yeah. it, it is not like there's some like it's not going to be all worth it one day. It will only be worth it if, as along the way, you enjoy the journey and you realize it's only going to get harder. It is not going to get easier. Um, and so if you have this idea that it's, it's mirage, that it's going to get better, like, you know, I will, I will quickly uh, 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 you of, dispel you of that, that myth. Another thing I would say is like, you, you should find parts of your day that give you energy. You know, at Optimizee, I made the mistake of, I think I mentioned earlier, sort of like hiring people who are really good at what they did and sort of forgetting about that and focusing on the other parts. I loved building things. I loved coding. I love getting my hands dirty. Like if that is part of your job and you love that, don't feel like you shouldn't do that because now you're a people manager. Like every day you should be looking at your calendar and saying, what's giving me energy? What's not cut the things that don't give you energy. Do the things that do give you energy. And, you know, I learned this from Lou Cerny, the, the, the CEO of, of new relic. Like he was, he was famous then as the, the public company CEO who still codes. Uh, but at that stage in his life, he was work, you know, I, I hate to compare myself because he's way more successful. But like he was on his second company. He had seen the pain of the first. Uh, and I feel like I have that same clarity of thought today. It's like, I'm on my second company. I had my little practice company for what it means to be successful and for what it means for me to have my mental health intact. Um, and so I've learned that lesson. Don't, be, don't think you're being selfless uh, if you, uh, you just do all the things that, that you hate. Boy, I could talk in hours, but that's, just, that's enough to start. But I don't and know, one question, this is selfish for me as a new parent. How do you organize with three? I you know, have one son now, he's 17 months, and I'm expecting a second son here yes. shortly. Yeah. So you're going to be two under two. How do you, how do you manage that? Because I think that's very difficult. Obviously, childcare is is critical, 
But what are you what are your tactics in around that around like, you know, you say you're you're doing dinner at five, you're putting the kids down. How, how do you set those boundaries and how's your setup work? And I mean, so obviously there's probably always friction, but how do you how do you make it work? Yeah. So I, a couple thoughts. One is the things these are the things I wish I had known before I went on this journey over the last few years. One is like happiness is the difference between expectations and reality. Set your expectations to it will be miserable. There yeah. will be a period of time, and for you in particular, at least for me, my first kid was super hard. Second kid is like, oh, I've done this kind of before. I know how to do these things. Third kid was, oh my gosh, what were you thinking? Because all of a sudden we're outnumbered. Like yeah. it was, you know, people say it's oh, it's going from you know man to man to zone defense. Clearly, anyone who's ever said that has never seen a sporting event because it is not zone defense. It is a power play. There's always one of them trying to do something to kill themselves in the corner that you're not noticing. So in that sense, set expectations to this is going to be incredibly hard. And then yeah. maybe it'll be slightly better. Uh, so that's my first piece of advice to you. You know, the second is, yeah, if you can outsource and get help, definitely. We have a fantastic nanny. She's amazing. My wife, uh, she still works, but she's also, you know, spends a lot of time with the family and the kids. So that uh, that's amazing. Uh, my mom and my brother are nearby too, and they help. And my brother-in-law, you know, having family, in -law, you know, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, they have five kids. So they come over. That's always nice. You get some economies of scale, you know, yeah. having our, their five kids and our three kids all just running around the house, like. At some point, somebody's going to see who's going to who's going to get bloody and need help. So you, you get a little bit of economies of scale there. So yeah, you know, and I'm no expert by the way. These are just the things I wish I had known uh, beforehand. <laughs> and I guess the last thing I'll say is like you know, it's it's uh, it goes back to the point around prioritization. Like you you can if you find that you're good at prioritizing your work life, you intend to be better. At least I found more prioritizing my your family life. Like I, I, you know, when I'm with my kids, I'm not constantly checking my phone. I am prioritized. I am focused. Like I, this is, you know, I precious time. They're only going to be five, you know, for a year, or at least one of them is. And like, yeah. so when I'm with them, I'm not, I'm not multitasking in a way that makes both the thing I'm multitasking with and the time with my kids worse. I'm like all in on that. So I think that's another thing you get better at over time is just being ruthlessly prioritized in the thing you're doing. If you're, if you're, if you're in dad mode, like you, you gotta be hundred percent in dad mode. Don't, don't multitask and think you're somehow doing two things at once. Cause you're really just doing two things poorly at once, not two things any better at once. That's a great, yeah, that's a great lesson that, that I'm picking up on. You gotta have the shut it down dad mode hours to be able to really, uh, get quality time as well as you're never going to be good at doing work and dadding. It's, it's, it's not, yeah, yeah. they're kind of like, you know, they don't work together. And I'll just say one last thing, because this yeah. is a pet peeve of, of mine, change diapers. Mm -hmm. I, I met a founder once and I won't name names that uh, just had a kid was talking about their weekend trips and then they may listen to this. So please, I'm sorry, I'm not going to name your name, but yeah. uh, we're at some founder dinner. They just had a kid and he's like, oh, I love going flying on the weekends. He flies his own private jet or whatever. And yeah. I was like, wow, you must be a super dad. Like, how are you doing it? And I was like, wow, and you still have time to like change diapers. He's like, oh, I've never changed a diaper. And yeah. immediately I lost all respect for him. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it is hard enough biologically. Like there's so many things that, that women biologically who are creating human beings have to go through both in the laboring, the, the creating, and then post, you know, if, if they choose to breastfeed, like there's just so much, at least just change all the diapers, you know, like yeah. that is the minimum thing I'd say. So that's, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. I've heard. And heard I'm sorry, if you're the dad who doesn't change diapers, I didn't mean to offend you, but like yeah. <laughs> you got, that's, that's like basic, basic parenting. I'd never obviously changed the diaper before my son. Now I, yeah. you know, I'm decent. I still mess up a little bit, but yeah. it's, it's definitely, pride, that's the thing is I took pride. I am so good at changing diapers now. Oh, I take so, so few wipes, such a perfect wrap, throw that thing. Oh, I just. Yeah, so take take pride in it. View it as yeah. like this is an opportunity to uh, to get good at a skill that you'll probably never need. But you know, who knows? One day you might be like, you know, what? hey, somebody needs some diaper changed. I can do that. Yeah, no, that there you go. No, that is that is a that is a good pet peeve. So jumping right into a couple more parts, got you know, talk about the parenting, the household, mental health. 
talk a bit about the personal finance, right? Like the you you now have an exit, a private equity exit, which you know you even say, hey, like it it it, it wasn't what we could have done, but you exited the company, you established your footprint that you were able to get return capital. How has that impacted you? Obviously, you have three kids. You live in Denver, so. How do you think about that and personal finance and what's your journey been around that as you, you I mean, you seem like you, you worked at Google, then you went and worked at Obama, with Obama, probably took a pay cut. Now the startup, how has your life and what are your kind of philosophies around personal finance as a founder in, 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 for a venture back company? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just start off. I'll, I'll happily talk about it. I'll just say I'm a little uncomfortable about it because I don't, you know, it's uh, it's just a topic that I, yeah, I, I tend not to try to talk about, but I guess, uh, and I'm uncomfortable because it's like, I don't want to brag or whatever. It's just like, it just, it's just for some reason, it feels weird to talk about, but I'll share some thoughts. One is that as a founder, almost always you have a huge percentage of your net worth in a very illiquid private stock, which is your company. And so you should view your finances with that as a lens. You know, like if you are both putting 99% of your illiquid or your total net worth into an illiquid private stock, and you're also day trading crypto, like you are putting a lot of eggs in the basket of technology. I mean, maybe I'm just also assuming you're a founder of a technology company, but like just yeah. broadly as like a portfolio perspective, like you probably shouldn't be dabbling in crazy risky things that are um, highly correlated with a success or failure. I've also seen cycles that go up and down. Like there's times when, you know, tech is, is all down, times it takes all up. So that's one thing to consider. I do think that uh, one thing that I started doing and now has paid a lot of dividends is, is investing in other startups. Uh, there are a lot of great scout programs that you can be part of that, you know, this was once a big secret, like early on, one of our first angel investors optimized it was Sam Altman. He actually invested in us via Sequoia through their Sequoia scout program, which at the time was like super top secret that like venture capitalists give people like Sam money to invest in other companies. Now I think it's super commonplace. So if you do have a traditional, you know, big investor, you can always ask them, hey, do you have a scout program? Can I help invest? Nice thing about that is you get some upside, you get a chance to see other companies, but be careful investing your own money in other startups for that same reason before. You have a huge amount of your private uh, illiquid net worth in a uh, startup. I also highly, highly recommend doing secondaries. Uh, if you have the privilege and luxury of like at any inv institutional investor stage doing secondary, which means selling some of your stock alongside selling some of the company stock, uh, mm -hmm. it, it is a highly aligning event you now are you have money in the bank that makes you feel like you're ready to get to the company to the next level you're not you're not you don't have this fear of like, oh my gosh like you know how am i going to you know pay the bills or private school or whatever if you know if this company goes down so i highly recommend that how did you um, approach the secondary because i feel like that's almost that was really as taboo taboo as the scout funds but now as i talk to more founders who've been through a few fundraising rounds. How do you how do you approach it? When is it, when's the right time? Obviously, you want to be a certain need to even have the ability to take a secondary. But how do you how do you size that if, if you're a founder in in your lifestyle to be able to kind of continue to run the race? Because I think that's what it is as well. Is like having that secondary option is not to cash out as we see some you know in some cases founders maybe take advantage, but it is really to say, hey, I have this baseline to where I don't have to worry so much about day-to-day -day expenses that I can actually run this company and get it to a great place? I, I would start by working backwards, empathy for the investor. You okay. know, the investor is investing because they believe in you, the founder, they believe in the business, and they don't, you know, they're trying to avoid a whole bunch of worst case scenarios, you know, and they, and they've been burned. You, know, you got to recognize you're one founder, you're likely a high integrity, good person doing the right thing. 
you don't know about the thousand other ways that founders screw investors. Yeah. <laughs> and they do because they've been screwed. You know, uh, I've heard stories. And so you got to start with that empathy. Understand like the worst thing for them would be they invest a lot of money in the company. They give you a little bit of money from that investment, a little on the order of millions. So it's a lot of money in your you know, objective sense, in the sense of this company and their portfolio, not that much. But if, if, if what happens the day after you get the money is you quit and you bail or you get disengaged, like they have failed. Like they made a mistake. Their LPs will be upset. Like it is very, very bad. So start yeah. with just recognizing from the investor's perspective what they're trying to solve for. And then with that as a lens, you can also then realize, okay, what they also don't want is for you to be so hungry and so desperate that the next, you know, another failure mode for them is like they invest at, a, let's say, you know, we invested at $350 million. That was our last valuation was $350 million. You know, if Apple comes along and says, hey, we'll buy you for $400 million, like that is a huge life-changing money to me, to everyone else. And like, but to our investors who just invested at 350 and thinks, by the way, when they invest at 350, they think we're going to be worth three, four billion in the next few years, 30, 40 billion in the next couple of decades. Like that is the math that they're doing. And so to yeah. sell at 400 million is a huge failure for them. So you got to think about it like, okay, what are they, what's the way to align your incentives? So they know, okay, you're not just going to sell the company to Apple for 400 million, but you're going to actually stick it out and actually build a company worth way, way more. So that's where there's kind of this win-win where some amount of money being sold is the secondary can get you. Okay. I've gotten sort of chips off the table. I feel like I've, you know, I, you can think about it as a video game. I've, I've got enough experience. I've leveled up to this level. I'm at, at the series A level, you know, like, and you got to keep working your way up to the next level. So I think those are all ways you can convince the investor to do it. And at the end of the day, if the investor wouldn't do it because of some other ideological reason, it may self-select them out too. Like I wouldn't, you know, I'll just say in the series A, it optimized it. I did secondary in the series B, it optimized it. I did secondary. It was with Benchmark, with Andreessen Horowitz. The series A for Rewind, I did a little secondary. That was with NEA. Like if the investor is unwilling to do it, that may tell you more about that investor and whether you want to be partners with them uh, than it will be uh, whether it's a thing to do or not. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I think that's, that's great, Dan, just the way to practically approach these things. Uh, well, that's great. Anything else you want yeah, to share? Can I say one more thing about that? Yeah. It's very, very important as the founder that you do not eat before your team eats. There's this leadership lesson in, in the SEALs or something that's like that leaders uh, eat last or whatever. Like that's never it. take secondary when you also don't offer it to your employees. Like that is very, very bad. It is, I mean, you can do it legally, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I think, uh, employees who are taking in some ways way more of a risk to join to expect you as a leader to be successful and to, to succeed very much with a much lower equity stake than you have as a founder. So I have never taken secondary in any of those situations without also giving the exact same opportunity to employees. And usually, you know, I'll tell employees, you know, up to 20% of their vested stock they can sell as part of the round. Uh, but I've never done it without offering it. I've certainly never done it at a better price than I would ever give any of my employees. That's good. That's a good, good talk point in understanding, especially with the dynamics of what we're seeing in some of these companies that have taken massive secondaries, but just for the founders, leaving a lot of the employees cut and dry. So transitioning quickly into AI and Rewind and what you all are building today. First around AI, obviously we're in a very, very high tide moment for AI and everyone's using it for everything, it seems like. Where where did you make the connection with building Rewind? Obviously, you said maybe you had this idea while you were still at Optimizely, and then it kind of continued to fester up over time. When did you really realize that AI would be a huge uh, driving factor of getting it out to market and getting it getting it in, in into productization? Yeah, you know, I the story doesn't begin with AI. The story begins with me going deaf in my twenties. Uh, mm -hmm. I had genetic condition. I still have a genetic condition, obviously, that, that caused me to go deaf. And then when I turned 30, I tried a hearing aid for the first time, and it was magical. 
You know, to lose a sense and gain it back again feels like gaining a superpower. There's no other way to describe it. And the more magical thing wasn't the fact that I could hear again. It was the realization that up until that point in my life, I hadn't been able to hear. You know, all of a sudden I'm like, I rubbed my shoulder and like, oh, this makes a sound. I turn on the faucet. I'm like, in awe, this makes sound. Uh, yeah. And so ever since that moment, I have been on a hunt for ways that technology can augment human capabilities and give us superpowers. That is what led us to what we're working on today. You know, our vision at Rewind is to give humans superpowers. We use the products in, on Mac and iPhone to help you capture everything you've seen, said, or heard and make it searchable. You can use large language models to ask questions of anything you've seen, said, or heard in a very privacy uh, first approach. But it wasn't, oh, AI is cool. Let me go find a problem to solve. It was very much the opposite. In fact, yeah. we launched Rewind. Uh, you know, we launched Rewind in, uh, I think, December, November. We were the coolest AI company on Twitter for about three weeks. And then ChatGPT showed up, you know, and so it was more the other way around. Like, you know, not to say that I thought AI was cool before OpenAI did. They, you know, they've been at it for a while. But that was kind of the order of operations. And then what was it's totally serendipitous is that then our integration with GPT-4 totally took advantage of this data that we'd already been collecting. So if you have everything you've seen, said, or heard stored locally in an encrypted private database on your own machine, we don't have access to it. You can then use that data and give, you know, with the power of large language models, which are designed for reasoning, you can use those things together to give you a truly personalized AI. And that's what's uh, been more, we've certainly been more lucky than good. You know, we're standing on the shoulders of, of giants there and, and, and the, the product we built wouldn't be possible with all the hard work that OpenAI and others have done. Mm -hmm. And as you, as you talk about the product, one of the things you notoriously said in one of your previous interviews with Rewind is you'll have a cadence of 11 releases a day. How do you keep that product velocity and how is maybe, does that correlate with now it's an AI driven product and you're able to use these LLMs, you know, to, to produce more products, but maybe discuss a bit about the cadence of releasing these new products and maybe just your general product perspective on shipping and, and prioritizing new features and things like that. And maybe we can also post that, talk a bit about this iPhone app that you all have most recently. Yeah. For sure. So yeah, one of the things I'm most proud of is, is our speed of execution. Uh, we deploy to production about 45 times a week. You know, that's five times per person uh, per week. So we don't have a huge team. Uh, so each person is about every day an engineer is shipping something to production. Okay. So, you know, and, and so that means typically, yeah, the average development time is just less than a day. And so there's a couple of things I'd say. One is to be decisive. You know, one of our cultural values is decisiveness. We move quickly, we avoid making perfect the enemy of good, and we use a very hypothesis-driven approach to making decisions. You know, it starts with recognizing most decisions are two-way doors. So don't overthink it and just ship. More likely than not, you can ship, you can learn, you can iterate, you go back and make it better. The second thing I'll say is to stay focused. You know, as I said before, the main thing is the main thing should say the main thing. That's why as a company, we only have five top priorities at any time. We only add a new priority when we finish an old one. And so why does that tailor to higher productivity and, and, and shipping is that it just ensures you have less whip work in progress. So if you have less whip, you're more focused, you do more things, you ship more things. The, the, the recipe to failure when it comes to shipping quickly is to, 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 to have too large of a scope and too large of an aperture uh, in terms of priorities. The third thing I'd say is make what you measure. You make what you measure. That's just the bottom line. Uh, we use a product called Haystack. Um, you go use haystack.io. I'm full disclosure. I'm a small investor and it allows you to measure your engineering performance. So every week you can review our, your, your change lead time, which is the amount of time from first commit to the code being released. Uh, you can review your deployment frequency and your overall throughput. So that's the third thing I'd say. 
Fourth is using dates. That's the other big thing. You know, most engineers bristle at the idea of a deadline. You know, they have tons of scar tissue from their prior jobs. Uh, you know, where somebody said some unrealistic promise that made uh, that was made to a customer or investor, and so now they have to sacrifice time with their friends and their family to make it possible. So I would say use dates, but recognize there's a better way than just arbitrarily making dates. Recognize there's a trade-off. You know, there's a trade-off between scope, quality, and date. Uh, scope is, you know, the features. Quality is how, you know, whether it's built and uh, and solves a problem. If you're, if you, you know, it's it's what what a user expects, and then the date. And you can only pick two of those three. You can only pick two of scope, quality, and date. And I always like to pick date and quality because it forces you to cut scope. That's another reason why we're able to ship so so much is that we very, you know, these 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 aren't massive new features. Five, you know, one a day a person. These are small incremental steps. You know, on the on the long arc of uh, toward perfection. Boy, I could go on and on. I'll give you a couple of quick ones. Other ones is hire relentlessly resourceful engineers. Uh, Paul Graham wrote an essay on relentlessly resourceful. Google that, check it out. Hire engineers who embody that. Onboard effectively. Onboarding is so critical to getting people to ship. We have a rule that every new engineer at our company needs to ship to production within 24 hours of starting. And this is just as much of a test of our code base as it is a test of our new engineers to ship. We do retrospectives every two months. Like these are all just, yeah, anyway, those are all the reasons that's how we're able to ship so quickly. It's pretty fascinating. I'll definitely be able to link some of these resources in the show notes. So last, we'll talk about this this iPhone app you, you all just released. Maybe give us a high level about it. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes, but talk a bit about that and what was the product choice that was made to, to get in people's iPhones as opposed to just being on people's uh, computers or laptops? Yeah, I mean, our vision is to give humans superpowers, and they do a lot more work beyond just their Mac. We started with the Mac because Apple Silicon made what we do possible. You can run, you know, rewind, runs in the background, it captures everything you've seen, said, or heard, makes it stores it all locally, and makes it searchable with AI. So that started on a Mac because that's Apple Silicon made it possible to do it imperceptibly in the background. We've always known that we'd go to iPhone, Android, Windows, or all those are all planned, but it was about focus, like I said before. So we focused on Mac. We moved recently to the iPhone, and that's available today. It's all free. You can download it and use it. Uh, it works very similar to how it works on the Mac, but the but, but iPhones are much more limited in what the operating system lets you do. Uh, the way it works, you download it on your phone. We capture things automatically, and then you browse, search, or ask about anything we've captured. On the phone, the two things we capture, number one is every you know all your browsing and then Safari. Uh, we do not capture private browsing. So you open a private browsing tab. We don't capture it by default for your privacy. And we also capture your screenshots. That was another big insight we had on our iPhone. Is like a lot of people just take screenshots to remember things better. So we slurp all that in, all your screenshots, everything you do in Safari, make it all searchable. Every word that you've read is indexed uh, using optical character recognition. And then you can ask questions. You can ask Rewind. You know, in the demo on our website, it'll ask, you know, how many founders are optimistic? I asked, this is a real, it was a real demo. It was like, I tried it and it blew my mind. If you go to our website, click on the little ask tab at the bottom, you can see on my iPhone, I ask, how many founders are optimistic? And it's magical what it does. Rewind takes what I saw on a Twitter thread, uh, which does a survey by David Phillips, the founder of Fondo. Uh, it takes that, it takes an image that he shared and understands from that image, uh, you know, what you know, it combines like people who are very optimistic with people who are optimistic. And then on top of that already was magical. Wow, it took an image from my Twitter feed. And then on top of that, it actually was able to take my conversations. It knew that I was a founder, that I have conversations with people, and that I've been optimistic and you know, synthesize it all together. Uh, so that is, uh, that's Rewind for iPhone. Check it out. Free to use. Growing amazingly fast. Very proud of it. Awesome. Awesome. Great. We'll definitely link that and make sure people people are signing up for the iPhone version of the app. I'm excited about using that. I've used it on my, on my browser. Definitely would like to see what it reveals to me from my iPhone. So that's, that's great. Dan, it's been so great having Dan Soroker on the show. Any other specific things that you would, you would, 
point founders in specific directions. If you know how to, you, I'm assuming you do some angel investing now as well. And and how how can people get in touch with you and get feedback from you on on things that they're building or just other things that you kind of discussed here? Obviously, go check out Rewind.ai. Yeah, check out. Check out Rewind.ai. Don't be, don't think you're too good for YC. So apply to YC. I think that is the best thing you can do as a founder to be successful as a founder. Uh, I tend to mostly only invest in other YC companies. So, uh, so that's another point. I see with Rewind again. Or? I did not. No, I probably should have, but uh, yeah. but I didn't. Uh, I didn't actually end up doing uh, YC with Rewind. But my former co-founder from Optimize, he's a group partner there, uh, Pete Kuman. Okay. Uh, so I could not highly more more highly recommend YC. And uh, at the end of the day, make something people want. You can't be avoided if you make something people want. There's a lot of people out there trying to sell tricks and tips to getting pitched and getting into YC. At the end of the day, you make something people want, everything else will be fine. Awesome. Awesome. Dan Soroker, ladies and gentlemen, current founder and CEO of Rewind. That's rewind.ai. It's a personal assistant can just sit on your devices and, and give you all the memory that you need and all the data that you need. Dan lives in Denver and he's been guest on the show here for the first time. Hopefully we'll get him back uh, as his company evolves, but definitely we'll link all the show notes. Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you, Matt. It's been a real, a real pleasure. Awesome.